Well, I do invite you this morning to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to read through into chapter 4. We have a number of very familiar passages available to us today, and uh, I'm trying to get a selection in our Bible reading across the gamut of what's available. And so I know we've read this not so long ago, but it is worth repeating. Philippians chapter 3, we'll begin reading in verse 8, and we'll read through chapter 4, verse 1. God's word declares, yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. Brethren, join in following my example. And note those who so walk, as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brother, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Well, we come to the last message of verse 1 of Jude. Um. And it's going to be a good introduction into verse 3. We still have, though, um, verse 2 to deal with in the next few weeks. Uh, So I'm going to probably be coming back to this message and reminding you of it in the weeks to come. But we have looked at the aspect of what the work of God is and what it demands of us throughout these three facets of our salvation. That we are called, we are sanctified, and we are preserved. Last week we looked at the work of God in preserving us in Christ Jesus. That he does so not by some fiat work that just waves a magic hand over you and declares you secure. 
that then you can go out and live as you please, be as you please, think as you please, knowing that your eternity is secure. But rather, the way, the manner in which God preserves us until that day, much like in the manner in which his, his calling and his sanctification is wrapped up extensively in his provision of all the resources necessary for us to endure. And we have looked at the Holy Spirit as the seal of our salvation, that is that he is the evidence that we have a future that is secure in him. But if there's no evidence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, because we are not walking in him, we are resisting him, we are, we are quenching him, then there should not be any sense of security in our salvation. For these are the resources God has given us. He has given us the resource of his word um, to work in our lives, the spirit's sword to divide bone from marrow and soul from spirit, to be able to really discern us because we know that our hearts can deceive us very easily. We can... We can feign security when it's not really there. We can convince ourselves that we're okay. And so the idea of the preservation that we talk about here certainly is tied to the work of God because he is faithful to complete that which he has begun in us. And we saw that in Philippians 1, that he is faithful. He, his Holy Spirit doesn't fall down on the job. He doesn't let you down. He doesn't vacate his role. He will be there and he will be an active agent in your life, providing he's there. His word will not fail. It does not return void or empty. And so we have confidence in that. But what God's word does not teach, that others are teaching, is that somehow we have no responsibility in this preservation of our salvation. That it is, again, entirely God's work, and their word is not to use the biblical word of preservation, but to use the word perseverance. The perseverance of the saints. That's the P in the, Cal in the Calvinistic tulip. Um, that, that is that since God is the one that began everything, had to make you new before he could even save you, um, so you would even be interested in him at all, uh, and that God has done everything all the way along the line, and you've really been hands-off and completely passive in this whole relationship, which isn't really a relationship anymore because it's not one responding to another, it's just one dictating to another, that therefore, since none of what you have has required anything of you, um, therefore, keeping what he has done in you isn't any of your work either. And to that, I have to say that that is contrary to enormous amounts of Scripture. I can't even begin to catalog them for you without just saying every book of the New Testament is very clearly. And when you get in the Old Testament, I cannot more clearly declare that that is not a biblical concept. And so I have so much scripture that I could tap into this morning that it's mind-boggling 
that anyone would hold to that facet that if God um, did this work, then therefore God will secure it and your actions, thoughts, reactions, responses are irrelevant to it is heinous. It's, it's evil in comparison to the Scriptures. The Scriptures are very clear in it. And so I want to take you to this passage in Philippians to understand the human part, the human necessity of response to the preserving work of God. That again, this is not God, the fairy godfather, who waves his magic wand and lets fairy dust fall on you, and now you are sure to go to heaven no matter what, and you can live, act, and behave, and speak however you please from this point on, knowing you prayed a sinner's prayer because God made you do it back in some day historically in your life, and therefore you are secure in heaven forever. That is nowhere, nowhere in the Bible. Rather, God has laid forth all the resources for our preservation, to endure, to last, to make it to the end, to attain to our inheritance. And those resources are powerful. Those resources are faithful. Those resources are sure. You might say, well then, how can we ever miss? Because you aren't faithful. Because we aren't sure. Because we aren't powerful. You see, God has done his part. He will finish what he has begun. The question that really lays out there in Scripture throughout is, will you finish the race? Will you keep the course? Will you sustain your response, faith response to God? That is the question, which immediately when you have so many passages that beg that question and, and, and are completely written for that very reason, including the book of Jude. The whole purpose of the book is to understand that you cannot allow these others to steal your faith, to destroy it, because that's what their goal is. And from Jude to the writer of Hebrews to James to Paul, all the way through into the Gospels of, with Christ and, and the teachings there um, into the Old Testament, uh, that Hebrews calls us to extensively. Go back and think about those people. They all went through that Red Sea, but they died in the wilderness because they didn't sustain their faithfulness to God. They made a right choice once. They put the blood on their doorposts and lintels, and so they went off with Israel, crossed the Red Sea on dry ground, a great experience, right? So you have the, the event I accept the blood of Jesus Christ. You have great experience. I crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. Crossed the Gulf of Aqaba right there. But then, at the base of the mountain, they're worshiping a calf as God and are destroyed for it. So yes, all through Scripture, there is ample evidence that while God is faithful, and sure, and we can have every confidence in him that we are not, and we cannot have any confidence in ourselves. And that is going to be borne out in our passages today. Before we go into that, let's go learn prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us and for your faithfulness and the preserving work that you have accomplished 
in all who believe, of placing your spirit within us and your word before us, of your people around us and, and all that has been accomplished already. And Lord, help us to recognize this morning your demands of us. To make that a reality in our life today, tomorrow, and into eternity. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Philippians. Now let's keep in Jude. Jude, verse 3. Beloved, I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. We're going to talk about that several weeks from now. I found it necessary, so that's what he wanted to do. I want to just talk about salvation, because it's fun to talk about salvation, right? And we've been doing that for weeks, because it's in verse 1. He, I could imagine you wanted to write all kinds of things about that, but he couldn't, and here's why. I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. And this is the premise of the book of Jude. You must contend earnestly for the faith. Well, how does that work when just two verses earlier it says you are preserved in Jesus Christ? Well, these are not contradictory, but complementary declarations. One, as we shared last week, is what God has done. The second one is how are you going to respond? Just as we talked about the calling of God, God calls, yes, but is not irresistible. For many are called, but few are chosen. Why? Because they don't respond. The work of God always requires a response by man. That's true for the calling, it's true for the sanctification, and it's true here for the preservation or the glorification. God says, I put everything in place, everything is secure. Um, you can have every confidence in me, but will you? <laughs> will you? You need to contend earnestly, Jude says. So let's look at some other authors. And uh, since we're right there in Jude, let's just turn a page back over to 1 John. And you had a Sunday School class series not so long ago on 1 John, where you went through that, and, and we find in 1 John chapter 5, why are we writing 1 John? 1 John is being written to believers that they may know, is verse 17, that you may, I'm sorry, verse 13, ugh, written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. The purpose of 1 John is to communicate to you this is the means by which you have knowledge that you are going to heaven. Wow, that's a great thing. So you read 1 John, and what do you find out? You're supposed to love God, keep his commandments. Commandments aren't grievous. I mean, you go through 1 John, it says, well, you're not going to sin, won't be the pattern of your life. These are the things that he writes, it says, so that you may know. And yes, all those facets are built upon the work of Christ in your life. You can't contend against sin without his help. Uh, you can't love as God commands you to love without having experienced the love of God. And that's why he says this is how you know the love of God is in you, because you love God and because you love one another. That is, begins with the work of God in your life, but it has an outworking in your life that is necessary. Without that, you cannot claim the first. Um, and again, holiness is something we 
don't generate. God brings us, makes us new creatures. And now we desire after righteousness and not sin. And we can't wait to obey God. Look forward to it every morning. Well, that's so you can know you have eternal life. Well, does that mean you can now just sit back in your lazy boy, kick up your feet, and just coast into heaven? No. What's the rest of the verse say? That you may continue to believe. So God initiated this work. You responded. You can see the evidence of a relationship going on there, of a love relationship going on there. And now, out of the basis of that love evidence of the love relationship, both of God's working and of the evidence in your life. These two together give you a surety that you are his and he is yours. Now with that knowledge, not experience, but knowledge, you are told to press on, continue, keep believing, which implies something. There is no retirement plan in the Christian life. There is uh, not on the side of heaven. We'll put it like that. That's our rest. This is not a time of rest. There's no rest here. The rest that we are waiting for, the writer of Hebrews tells us, is an eternity. That is our Sabbath rest. And for now, we have opposition. We have struggle. We, we, we strive. We earnestly contend, Jude says, for the faith. And we're going to get to that, as obviously, in several weeks, about a month from now. Um, maybe a little bit longer. Depends on how long it takes for me to convince you of God's mercy, peace, and joy. <laughs> but um, we find this aspect of our preservation. Yes, God's done his part, but you must respond. Well, let's look at it. In, this is First John. You have knowledge. You know you're going to heaven. So what's the result? You're going to continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. You're going to maintain, you're going to sustain that faith. And unsustained faith is not saving faith. And again, I could go through a lot of scripture, um, pretty much every book of the Bible, um, and look at this. But I want to take you to Philippians because, I want, because it's so clearly evident in a very mature Christian's life and his declaration this is Paul towards the end of his life. This is not him early on uh, in the struggles that he's encountering. This is, he has experienced a lot. And uh, he has already written substantial portions of Scripture. He has endured much for the cause of Christ. He has, he has pressed it. He has uh, modeled it. He's done all of those things. You might say, well, if there's anyone at any time that is completely confident and can now just relax, it's Paul. Certainly, he has full assurance of eternity in his heart. Yes, he does. For the reasons we saw in 1 John. Because God began a good work in him. Paul's response to that work and obeyed. And obeyed. And obeyed. God was faithful, directed, guided, led, illuminated through the Holy Spirit, uh, worked through him. Paul's responsive, kept serving God. And here we are at the end, and Paul has this to say. 
He says, I'm trying by everything I can see and know and do to, in verse 11, if by any means I may attain to something. He's still trying to get somewhere. The literal Greek there is that um, I want to reach the finish line. I want to I get there. I want to arrive. I want to end the journey. And so I want to end the journey with the resurrection. And he, I don't see him thinking that he's on the backside of, a, of the hill of life and that he's just going to coast into it. No. It's not there. He says, I'm still by every means. And so I still, notice the tense of the verb in the verse before, verse 10. I want to know Christ. He still says there's so much I want to explore and know and personalize. I'm still involved in this process of my salvation. And and verse says, I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to be conformed to his death. He sees a lot demanded of him. This is the guy that began this book with the statement that Christ began a good work. We'll finish it. And now here at the end of the book, he says, and don't think that I don't have something required of me in that process of God finishing his work in me. There is something required of us that we press ourselves into his service. Look at verse 12. Not that I've already arrived. He hasn't arrived. He hasn't attained. He's not perfected. The completing, the completion of his preservation by God isn't over. So do we hear him say, well, I'm not perfected, so I just um, wait on the Lord. I'm just sitting here waiting for God to take me home. I'm going to go to Hallelujah Acres and and Florida and and just rest and wait for God to take me home. No. Didn't happen. Here we go. Are you ready? I press on, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. This is what I'm talking about this morning. This phrase. Why? Because it has both elements, doesn't it? Christ got a hold of me. Now I'm going to hold on to him. And that is the fullness of what we mean by being preserved in Christ Jesus. First of all, if Christ didn't do the work in you, you can cling and scratch and, and yell and clamor and try to grab spiritual things and it will mean nothing. Christ must first get a hold of you. And if you've never let him do that, I suggest you do it now. Say, Christ, I'm yours. If you'll take me. And you will. If you'll let him. Now, in response to get to the resurrection, to get to the full arrival, to the destination, to our inheritance. To get to there, Paul says, Christ laid hold of me, and I am laying hold of 
him. I'm laying hold of that inheritance. I'm laying hold of those promises. I'm laying hold of that. I want that. And I recognize that it requires something of me that I press on. I dare not just sit back and relax as I've done enough for Christ. I'm just going to coast into heaven. I've done enough. It's the younger people's time to shine as, as, if, as if we're in corporate America. It's just not the case. Paul says, I'm still pressing. I'm an old man. I've I'm, I'm been beaten up. I've been, I've been stoned. I, I probably, at this point, he probably has, doesn't have very good vision at all. And he can have every excuse to stay home. His body has been battered. But his spirit is mighty. Because while he has faced great enemies who are trying to diminish his place within the kingdom of God by exalting their own, Paul is not going to be discouraged because his eyes aren't on the neighbors. His eyes on the prize. I press toward the prize, he says, of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I press on. Can you not see the necessity of our response to the preserving work of Christ that we endure. Throughout all of Scripture, you will find you must endure. You must stand fast. He's going to say in chapter 4, verse 1, and you can just look up that phrase alone and see how extensively it's used in the Bible. Stand. Having done all, stand. Take your stand for Christ. It is part of God's preserving you and your response to his work of preservation is to stand in him, complete. And Paul says, here I count myself, I haven't acquired it all, but here's what I do. Verse 13, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal, toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He has his eschatology in place and he has an understanding of his salvation, fully engaged, fully matured in his life, and he still recognizes, I must press on. There is still something required of me. I have to not rest on my laurels, on my past accomplishments. I forget the things that are behind. Yeah, I did that for Christ. Yeah, I did that for Christ. And you might say, forgetting the things that are behind are all your sin. Maybe. That's true as well. Okay, I'm not going to say either or. It's probably both and. Yes, I can forget all my failures that are behind me and all of that. Um, but you know what? You can also forget all your accomplishments for Christ behind you because recognizing that you cannot sit there and just skate along now because you've already done your, your share. The course of ministry growing up, I remember having that conversation with people. It says, well, I'm, I've just gotten to this age, and it's like, and this condition, it's like, and, we got, and I've heard it. I've heard it from mature deacons. When I was an intern, I was the young guy. I was the baby. 
just out of college. I knew everything back then. Um, I was just out of seminary. I, I had my degree. You know, I got a, this master's degree that says I'm really smart. Um, and here's these old guys, and they're saying, well, we're just going to resign from the board and let these younger guys do it. And um, what disaster. It's a disaster. You see, nowhere in here is Paul talking about his physical energy levels because the ministry isn't about that. It demands something physically of you, but this guy has been worn down physically. You don't go to Roman prisons. You don't go through whippings and beatings and stonings without having serious physical ramifications. He didn't walk with a pep in his step, okay? If you saw Paul by this point, he would look worse than me. Yeah, you know, some of you see me hobbling around a little bit, and it's not that serious. But uh, um, he—he's not going to be impressive. He's not going to want to play games with the children at Word of Life clubs. But he knows he's still pressing on. He's got something in front of him that he's still stretching for. He's still applying himself toward. He says, I'm going to forget the stuff that's behind. I'm going to reach forward to the things which are ahead. There's still things to accomplish for Christ in my life. And it is this attitude, it is this faith that is the hallmark and maybe the definition of saving faith. Real faith in God, genuine faith that endures to the end and will claim that prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. It awaits those. But notice from Paul's perspective, he says, I don't want to miss it. You might say, at his age? He's worried about that? It's crossed his thinking. I want to arrive at the destination in step with the Holy Spirit and not drug by my heels by the Holy Spirit into the kingdom. And so he says, verse 16, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. Whatever you have acquired in your knowledge and ministry um, doesn't grant you permission to sit down. If you've attained a lot, walk. Keep walking. If you've attained a little, doesn't give you permission to sit down. Keep walking. Walk in the Spirit. You'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We are called to walk with him all our days. I'll walk with him always. We sing that little tune. I hope you know it. And it doesn't always filter down that, well, there is no rest this side of the goal, of the prize. The prize is our rest. Until then, I'll keep walking. And he says, Keep my, me as a pattern, and that's what I'm doing. I'm setting you before you, Paul, as a pattern. Late in his life, late in the ministry, he is our pattern. We're going to keep walking. 
Why? Because our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly wait, it says in verse 20, for our Savior. Yes, I understand. We all want Christ to come very soon. I can't wait. I can't believe he hasn't come yet. <laughs> I'm eager for it. That doesn't mean I'm going to go to the mountain, resign, and just sit and rock into the kingdom. I mean on a rocker. Not with my radio on. No. We keep walking. We keep walking. We keep walking. We stand fast in our faith. Because our citizenship is from there. And yes, we, he rehearses what we're looking for. This wonderful finish. This glorification. Preservation. It's completion in our life. Yes, and that's ultimately the work of God. You're not going to make that work happen, but it is required of you by God that as he begins that work, that you respond, and, and as you respond, he says, I'll finish it. I'll do what you've trusted me to do. And I know you've trusted me to do it because you've walked all these years, all these days, all this way toward this line. And so he says, my beloved long for a brother, my joy and crown, stand fast in the Lord. Of all things he wants to summarize before he gets into some of the specifics of this church in chapter 4, he, he says, stand fast. That's ultimately what I want you to do. And if you go through the other books of the Bible, you'll find that they're very prevalent. Book of Galatians, what is Paul concerned about? Who dares to, to be brought into your midst and... and trip you up in your faith. Does that sound like he believes in the perseverance of the faith the Calvinists teach? No. He recognizes there's a, there's a danger, a real danger. He says, you foolish Galatians. I mean, that's pretty strong verbiage. Who has bewitched you? If you don't Cling to Christ. If you don't lay hold of him who has laid hold of you, there is nothing else that will get you to the line. Hebrews, the warnings over and over again. James, where's your, where's your faith? Show it. If you can't show me your faith, don't say you have any. I don't mean show me the past faith. Forget that stuff. Show me your faith. Today is his declaration. Where are your works? Show me your faith. If there's no evidence today, can such faith save you? That's the question James asked. Can that kind of faith save you? No, is the answer. You see, God preserves us by providing all of these wonderful, powerful, faithful tools and mechanisms, but it requires us to place our trust in them, just like the initiation of salvation, where you say, well, I couldn't die for my sins. I can't, I can't forgive. I can't make any of that happen. I have to trust in the blood and the work of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, but I have to accept it. That's at the initiation of your salvation. 
at the preservation of your salvation requires the same thing of you, that you accept the work of God and the evidence of that is that you're walking in the Spirit, not fulfilling the lusts of the flesh, that you love God, that you keep His commandments, that you have <laughs> this active, pressing faith that is evident to everyone in your works. And so, yes, there's absolutely a human element to the preserving work of God in our lives. We didn't begin that, and we can't end it. For God must initiate it, and he must complete it. But he awaits for us to see, are you going to be faithful? I think one of the most telling passages about how God, what God wants, is Hezekiah. I think that's one of the most telling events of the workings of God in the affairs of men. You see, God was with Hezekiah, and in the passage it says that God left him to see what he would do. For God was there making everything work for Hezekiah, and Hezekiah was, was right with him, and and uh, God says, okay, I'm just going to step back away a little bit. And I just want to see where your heart's at. I got to tell you, there's some times in my life that I feel like God kind of stepped back away a little bit to just see, well, where are you going to go with this, Kirk? Are you going to go with you? Or are you going to come back and say, I need you? I need you, Lord. That's all Hezekiah had to say, was, I need you, Lord. And Lord would have stepped right back into the... But instead, he went his way. And he made some horrible choices that really sets up the demise of Israel, of Judah. But God says, I just want to see what you're going to do if, if I just require something of you instead of something of myself. Let's see what you do. Will you call out to me? Will you put your faith, trust in me? Will you pray to me? He did it similarly with Joshua and the people of, of Israel as they were conquering the land. Why didn't he intercede when those Gileadites came? Gile, Gibeon, Gibeonites came. You know, dressed in tattered clothing with moldy bread and everything. He said, we're from a far country. Make a pact with us. Does it ever disturb you? It disturbs me. Nobody thought we should ask the Lord. And the Lord waited to be asked. And it never, he never got asked. Another bad decision. You see, consistently throughout the scriptures, God is a relational being. He will initiate and then wait and let you respond. That's true for your, the beginning of your salvation, the sanctification of your salvation, becoming holy, 
and it is true for the completion of your salvation. He's promised to finish it. If you endure, stand fast, persist, press on, attain, and in the book of Jude, he calls upon you to be constantly at it. What a great term, constantly. There is no letting up, there is no surrendering. I've done enough. There is no such thing. And so Paul declares that, that we are stand fast in the Lord. I do not think this is an unusual principle that you are unfamiliar with. But I also think that we forget and we are easily captivated by others who want to get ourselves off the hook by saying, well, God has to do all that. God has to do all that. God has to do it. God has done it. Let me be very clear. God has done all that. He's done all that he needs to do. And he will do all that he has promised to do. But what he has not promised to do is to treat you like a marionette puppet and pull every string to make you do his will. He has done everything and now he waits. And like the days of Hezekiah, like the days of Joshua, there are going to be instances in your life where God will not make himself powerfully evident. Oh, it's exciting when those days happen. I mean, it's pretty obvious that we got to cross that Red Sea because it's the only place to go and there goes the cloud or there goes the pillar of fire. Pack up, let's go. Those are exciting days. But they are not really the measure of your faith. Yes, that's not the measure of your faith. The measure of your faith isn't did you step out into with a wall of water on that side and a wall of water on that side. That's an exciting experience, but it's not really a test of your faith. The real test of your faith is when you're down in the camp at the bottom of the mountain and God isn't there. He's up at the mountain talking to one other guy. And you're down here on your own. It's when the deceiver comes and shows up at your encampment and God doesn't expose them right away. It's when God leaves to see what you'll do on your own. People like Hezekiah. That's the measure of your faith. That's when it's tested. Christ described this in my last passage this morning. We're not even going to turn to it. In the, is the parable of the sower and the soils. What is the measure of your faith? And you guys have heard me teach this sufficiently that I know that I'm only going to take like five minutes on it, but I want to remind you of it. There were seeds that fell on rocky soil. 
They sprang up. But they had no root in them. And that root is really saving faith. You and I look at that parable, the sower and the soil and the seeds, and we say, well, you know, the one gets snatched off and there's no life at all. But we see that one in rocky soil and it springs to life. And you say, well, there's life. And you and I would get excited and we would run down to the river, baptize them and say, hey, we got a, a new child of God. And, and we try to get them to 1 John 5, 13 as fast as possible so they we know they have eternal life. Um, but then the Bible says something happens. The sun comes up. The sun representing those times of great testing, of hardship, of persecution, tribulation, times of God not being so readily available. Because we haven't cracked our Bibles since last Sunday. Because we haven't considered his, way, his truth in our ways. And the Spirit doesn't seem to be at work in our life. We're more interested in entertainment than in serious engagement with God to press on in our knowledge of him and his resurrection and his sufferings and his death. And as sun comes up and scorches and truly well-rooted plants will survive. They'll stand in the field. They'll endure. But the ones that sprang up all the evidence of life, just as the same as those other two kinds of soil, seeds and soil, same exact evidences of life. Here comes that little sprig pushing through the soil, and here it starts to open up and leaf, and we're all excited. And out comes the test. And they shrivel up and die faster than they ever came out. Like that, they're gone. I've done a lot of funerals in my ministry life. I can't tell you how many times I've heard Christian parents trying to say, well, we know our child, our son, our daughter wasn't living for the Lord when they died, but they made a profession of faith when they were a child and they were baptized. Trying to convince me to give them a Christian funeral and to say words to the effect that you can have every assurance that they're in heaven. But I could not. Because I know those children. I knew them. There was zero, there was less than zero evidence of their life. There was every evidence that they hated God, rejected him, despised him. And so I didn't. I gave it a, the funeral, I gave an evangelistic message in the funeral, but I made it very clear in the course of that that I wasn't, I had zero confidence that this person was in that state. You see, when the test came, and that test could be peer pressure, that test could be family, um, that test could be circumstances. Um, those those times that God says, let's just see. 
Let's just see what your faith is made of. And yeah, there's that book of Job. <laughs> Let's just see what your faith is made of. Will you trust me? Will you call out to me? Not to accuse me, but to ask for my help. Will you follow me? Even when the way is dark, from your perspective. And for many, 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 that is the end of their faith. When that scorching sun comes out and burns them up. And Hebrews says when that happens, to renew them is impossible. They've denied the Lord that bought them. And so, yes, it's there, isn't it? From the Gospels to the Epistles, the Old Testament to the Prophets, the, the, the narratives, it's there. It's consistent from Genesis to Revelation. We are called to endure. We dare not ever let up and say, well, we have arrived at the mountain of God. Let's just relax, because as soon as that happens... You'll be worshiping some stupid golden cow in a matter of hours. And Paul says, I don't want that to happen. I'm pressing on till I'm there. That is saving faith. Not faith that saves you, but faith that endures for God to save you. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us, for the power of your work in our lives, through the blood of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And we are so overwhelmed that you came to us, that you wanted to deliver us from our sin and death and the enemy. And accomplished all that was needed for us to be saved. Lord, we, not only for us, but for any and all who will call upon your name. And Lord, most, if not all, everyone here has done that. And Lord, we know that that's not the end of your expectation of us. That you have placed and given us of your Holy Spirit, of your word, of Christ, that we might endure. Lord, we again recognize our responsibility to persist in our faith, in your truth and your work in our life. And Lord, may we, with equal eagerness as Paul, press on what you have before us. Lord, make us ever mindful of your truth. Help us, Lord. Do not think we have done enough, but to look that we might do more. That we might truly hear you say, well done. Good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest. Lord, this is our heart's desire. 
which is an easy thing to say, but Lord, help us to live that desire before you, the balance of our days to your coming. In Christ Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.